Um, so let's start with a prayer. Let's all bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your provision. Um, in these times where there's a lot of questions in life, we thank you that we have a foundation that is immovable, um, that, that we don't have to worry about changing or um, or just questions or unknowns that, that, that we have to fear. Uh, Lord, in, in, a, in a time where so many of our coworkers and our friends and maybe even our neighbors are fearful and worried, um, we're thankful, Father, that we can lean to you and turn to you. Um, we just glorify your name for your goodness and mercy. And now we pray that as we've gathered together, that um, that you would teach, you would reveal your word in spite of my inadequacy. Uh, Father, as we open your word and read from it, um, that you would uh, reveal to each of us individually what we need to hear, what we need to know, what, what we need, uh, Lord, to be able to, to live more accurately, more fully for you. Uh, Father, you know our needs, you know where you know where we're failing, where we're desperately short. Um, you know where we need to be strengthened and encouraged and lifted up. You know where we need to be comforted. Um, and we pray that you would provide, that um, that your word would meet all of those needs and more as you know us individually. And Lord, we would also pray for strength and, and, and courage and boldness in this time to share your gospel. Uh, Father, we're home and, and, and we're... Um, we have time maybe that we didn't have before. And so we just pray that we would use that time wisely for your glory and your honor. And now as we're going to read from your word and share, we pray that um, that you would speak and that, that the words that are spoken would be yours, not mine, and that they would apply to all of us. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, so... In, the, in this time, um, I've had to do some uh, virtual counseling, something that I haven't uh, ever had to do before. Uh, it's been a little bit more interesting uh, to be on FaceTime and do baptismal counseling. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I have uh, had to tackle is additional conversations about repentance and what that means. I, uh, and so that's what's been on my mind. Um, and as I've been talking about uh, repentance with people, um, it came to mind, and what what uh, what I remembered is all the various uh, various definitions that people have given me over the years about what repentance is. And so, um, you know, what I've heard, um, and as you think about what is repentance, um, what are things that you've heard or thought about as as what repentance is? Um, repentance, somebody told me, is asking God to forgive me. Uh, somebody else mentioned that repentance is to stop doing bad. Uh, repentance is is maybe um, praying that God would forgive me, and he does. Uh, somebody else said it's loving God and hating evil. Uh, somebody else told me it's one of the steps of salvation. And so, um, you know, as we dive into into the message this morning and into God's word, as you think about what repentance is in Matthew chapter four. Um, verse 16 and 17. This isn't going to be our um, our main our reading. Uh, it's just one of the thoughts to build up to to the topic that we would have at hand. Um, Jesus says the people which sat in darkness saw great light. Or, or I'm sorry, what we hear about Jesus is the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." 
And in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus says, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then remember in, at Pentecost, Peter in Acts chapter 3 saying, repent. Um, and in Acts 17, Paul says, repent. At this time, and when he was uh, on the when he was on, on Mars Hill talking to the Greeks, he says, at the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And so what is repentance? We all kind of have ideas about repentance. Um, we try to define it, and, and um, we find that sometimes it's so multifaceted that it's it's hard to define. Uh, you know, and and sometimes we try to give it words, but it's actually almost easier to uh, define a thing by giving examples of what it is um, rather than trying to give it exact words. And so there is a passage that I love in 2 Corinthians that that does provide a very clear example of repentance. And so um, I'd encourage all of you to turn to 2 Corinthians with me. Um, We're going to read from 2 Corinthians, mainly from chapter 7, but we're going to start in chapter 6 because there's a buildup to it. So I'll give it a second um, to to let you find 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll start with the first verse. Uh, and then we'll we'll go from there. So, um, in Second Corinthians chapter six, uh, we're going to start with the first verse, and it's hard to start anywhere in the middle in these cases because you'll see as we start to the first verse in chapter six, it's actually referring back to chapter five, um, and as we then start chapter seven, it's going to be referring back to chapter six. So that's why we're kind of starting back and in, in, uh, backing up a little bit. So, um, chapter six, verse one, the apostle Paul says as he's writing to to Corinth, we then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Um, So just starting right off the bat, right, the Apostle Paul is is urging uh, the church in Corinth to, to not take the grace of God in vain and make it in a way useless. Now that that first verse could be a sermon in of itself. We're not going to do that today. But then we go on to verse 2, and Paul quotes Isaiah 49, and he says, For he saith, right, this is from Isaiah 49, 8, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time, um, now is the day of salvation. Uh, he's not saying specifically this day. But what he is really challenging the Corinthian church to do is to take advantage of an available time uh, to fully embrace God's call. Right? Don't let God's grace slide by where you take it in vain and you take it lightly and you don't take it seriously and it kind of just fades away. Instead, take advantage of the, the time that you have. Um, this is the time, you know, you can almost picture the Apostle Paul um, as he's as he was writing to the Ephesians, and he talks about the mystery of God, um, you can almost see that 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 now through the church, God's mystery is being revealed. The Holy Spirit has come. Um, salvation is available. It's available to everybody, and he's challenging the church to to not take it lightly, but to take advantage of the day, right? To seize the moment and and say, um, and he's quoting Isaiah because Isaiah was referencing this time. And he's saying, I have heard thee in a time accepted. In the day of salvation, I have succored thee. Now is that day. So seize it. Take advantage of it. Um, and so it's a, it's a, 
amazing preamble to think about as we as we dive into the main the main message that there's this idea that he's saying you got to take advantage of the time that you have and so we'll keep that in the back of your mind as we continue reading we're going to um we're going to skip a little bit from from the, the those first two verses because um the apostle paul in in the following verses really um from kind of from verse three um through to uh to verse, let's call it verse 14, is really um, identifying everything that he's gone through um, on their behalf and others have gone through, right? He's 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 identifying um, what they did in their ministry, the stuff, the suffering that they've gone through. And then we get to, um, to verse 14, and we usually tackle verse 14 for marriage, sometimes for business, um, and we kind of tackle it in isolation. But think about it in the context of what he said in, in the first two verses, as we start with verse 14, kind of in a bigger picture mindset. And so he says in verse 14, um, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Right? In the context of, of not taking God's um, grace lightly, of seizing the moment uh, to live fully for Jesus Christ. Um, in context now, as you go to verse 14, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord, right? what communion hath, hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. Again, quoting Isaiah, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Um, so, uh, just, you know, really powerful uh, thought here that he ends ch uh, chapter 6 with, where he ends with a promise, uh, and wanted to... Uh, to, to kind of start really our re our full reading in the in the kind of the body of the the thought with at that point where the beginning of chapter six he he starts off with a challenge an exhortation and an urging to to take advantage of the moment that you've been given um really speaks loudly for the moment that we have today right to take advantage of that moment and he ends chapter six and, and he moves on into another therefore kind of moment with with a promise that of what God has said that if if you um, come out from among them and you separate say and be separate right and 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 not be unequally yoked with unbelievers with a lifestyle that that is obviously not appropriate um, that I will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters saith the Lord Almighty so this this fantastic conditional promise to a church. Um, encouraging them and exhorting them to step out of where they were and move into God's promise. Now, um, this is written to a church, right? This is not written to unbelievers. It's written to a church that has had significant issues. Um, Howbeit, uh, I would propose that as we get into the idea of repentance, it is still, it's still being um, focused on a church. You see the detail in there that that applies to every one of us individually and so and that's what we're going to um dive into so <laughs> uh chapter seven first verse 
having therefore these promises. So we had to read chapter six to hear the promise and to understand the context. Having therefore these promises. Now we get this um, this continued exhortation and urging from chapter six um, at the beginning. Uh, Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So these are great statements because Paul knows where they're already at. And so he is speaking to them knowing that they've reached a state of repentance. Okay, so it's different than if he didn't know their state and and was really worried about them. His exhortation and encouragement to them is coming in the context of knowing that that repentance has occurred. And so this encouragement to continue in it, to build in it, to grow in it, to the church is powerful. I mean, that's something for each of us individually as we think about repentance to do the same. So in chapter seven, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Uh, And I apologize because there's so much substance to each of these. You could literally take each of these and and break them apart as a message. The first verse could be a message. um, And we're just using it as context building. And so uh, we get to to Paul's meeting uh, with Titus in in this next section that we're going to read. And we read, receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die and to live with you. So build up, if you recall, the first letter to Corinth, um, right? There was division somewhere for uh, somewhere for Peter, somewhere for Apollos, somewhere for Paul. He's like, hey, um, listen to me. Uh, we haven't corrupted. We haven't injured anybody. We haven't defrauded anybody. I haven't robbed anyone. So um, listen to what I'm saying. Like He's reinforcing this notion to hear me. Hear me, hear what I have to say. Um, so verse four is where we're going to really start. And he says, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulations. Um, so he is going through a hard time right now, but he's telling the Corinthian church that I'm really happy inside. I have joy. I have comfort in, in spite of my tribulation. And so the question is why? And we find out why. And this is where we get to the kind of the, the real depth of, of the topic of repentance. He says, for when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, we were, but we were troubled on every side. Without, we're fighting. So on the outside, there was persecution, tribulation, fightings in a sense, right? That there was we were uncertainties. And within, inside of us, were fears. So that the, the troubles on the outside and the fightings on the outside and the persecution on the outside created fear and anxiety inside. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. And so he says, Titus came, and we're going to find out why Titus um, brought joy and comfort in spite of tribulation. And it says, and, and not by his coming only. So it wasn't the fact that Titus showed up that that gave them comfort and joy inside, but by what he said. And here's what he said. But by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your fervent, or sorry, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, 
so that I rejoice the more. So he says, the Apostle Paul is now restating to the Corinthian church that when Titus came, he shared with us um, his comfort, that he, his mind had been eased, right? His, his, his joy in, in, inside his body was comforted by what? By an earnest desire that he saw in you, by a mourning that he saw in you, by the, the, uh, an affectionate kind of attitude um, towards you, Paul is what Titus told him, and it gave Paul comfort. And you can almost imagine um, a situation, maybe you can experience that and have experienced it yourself, where where there was times in life where there was struggle, right? And 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 there was some separation with somebody. And, and you wondered um, about that. You wondered about how they were doing or how you could bring things together. And you'd done everything you could, but you didn't feel like, like there was closure, if you will, and a togetherness between maybe two two brothers or two sisters or between family. And then and then you hear that things are all right, or you see from them and from what they say that things are right, that comfort and that peace that it gives you. And so that's what Paul's experiencing. And so the Apostle Paul says this, and, and he starts with verse 8. I'd really like you to follow along verse by verse here, um, because this is so powerful. Um, this is where Paul uh, in a way, what we find here in this in this portion is a uh, is an outline or a checklist, if you will, of of attributes that you see in a repentant heart. And this is in Christians and in a church. But I would propose to you that that what you see here is evident in every heart that repents, and every heart and every individual that that changes and gives their lives to God. We see these attributes, and these attributes then can provide the definition that we talked about at the beginning. So the Apostle Paul says, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Now, we were using the word um, right off the bat, and the Apostle Paul is using it in a different context. So he says, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. So maybe let's just talk about, for really quickly, what does repentance mean? Um, so repentance, the word repent, uh, metaneo uh, is is what the word is in the Greek, metaneo, uh, metanea, it could also be, um, maybe if you, if you if I've mispronounced it, um, it's to think differently or to reconsider. Uh, so that's the mental aspect of it, to change one's mind, to change one's mind for the better, um, to, to, to kind of amend or a change of thinking is what, what that word would mean. Um, but there's a built-in, when we talk about repenting, it's, it's more than just changing the mind. There's a series, there's a turning that takes place, right? And so I think, let's just, we'll build on it, but let's just, let's take this idea of to to reconsider or to think differently in a, and stick those phrases in verse eight. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, or I, I do not think differently, or I haven't reconsidered, though I did reconsider. Or I did repent. So this is this is perfect. Have you ever been in the situation where you you uh, you hit send on an email, and then you're like, oh no, what did I just do, right? And that that sending the email, and you 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 wish you hadn't sent it. And so the apostle Paul, in a sense, is saying the same thing here in verse eight, where he had hit send. Now he probably didn't hit send back then, right? He uh, he sent the letter, probably with a messenger, could have been with Titus. We don't know, but he sent the letter. Um, 
which letter is it? It's likely 1 Corinthians. Right? It would make sense. We don't know that for a fact, but it would make sense that it was 1 Corinthians. So he says, for though I made you sorry with a letter, and that's why 1 Corinthians as the letter that was sent makes a lot of sense, because if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know how harsh he is. So um, I sent you this harsh letter. And when I first sent it, I repented of it. I reconsidered. Maybe I even, Paul's saying, maybe I even, you know, maybe he even wished he hadn't sent it. Like he really, he, maybe he thought he was too harsh when he sent it. And, and it worried him that, that what's it going to happen when he sends, when he sent this letter. And so he reconsidered, but now he says, I do not repent. I, I, I do not change my mind. Why? Um, we're going to get to that in verse nine, why he, he hasn't changed his mind. So he says, for I perceive that the same epistle, AKA letter hath made you sorry, though it were, but for a season. So this, this letter that I sent made you feel really bad, made you sorry, right? Um, though it were, but for a season, for a time, it made you feel bad. Now it goes in verse nine. And this is why he says, I didn't change my mind after I, I, I sent the letter. I did, but I didn't. Now, now I rejoice because he saw the results of the letter. And so now he's rejoicing. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance for you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. So I sent this letter and I felt really bad. Now that I've heard what happened, I don't feel so bad. I'm glad I sent it, even though initially I was really worried about sending it, basically, in, in, in layman's terms. And now instead I rejoice. I'm excited because that letter, even though it caused you to mourn and it hurt you initially, has has made you repent. And it made you realize the direction you were headed. And it made you change the direction you're heading in. And so we see this evidence of a change. And the first step in this evidence that we hint at in verse nine is sorrow. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us and nothing. And he says the consequence here, this receiving damage is an interesting old school term, but it would basically be saying that because I've seen the evidence of of what's happened of, of the letter. I don't have to come and discipline you, put you under punishment, etc. right there. You don't have to receive damage, suffer loss by us. Why? And, and so let's talk about now attributes of repentance so that that can help us define what it all means. In verse 10, we read for godly sorrow, worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And so we start off with a contrast between this two types of sorrow. One is a sorrow that he calls godly sorrow. Another is a sorrow that leads to death. So what is the difference between those two? What would you say would be the difference? Right? Um, the, the idea of godly sorrow, is it's not some mystical sorrow that, that only comes on special people. Um, versus uh, a worldly sorrow. So worldly sorrow, maybe we start with the obvious one. Um, so uh, if I repeat anything, I apologize. So godly sorrow, um, you know, the, the notion of, of, of 
godly sorrow versus uh, worldly sorrow. So worldly sorrow is, at least in the way I understand it and the way I've experienced it, is is this idea of um, of guilt or of being in the in the in the state of mind where I just can't. Um, I, I, I feel so awful about something I've done. Um, and I, I think I was mentioning uh, the idea that you might you might know somebody. It might be a family member or a friend or even somebody from church, um, or it might be just you. Like it, it was me at times where you feel so awful about what you've done that you you can't move out of it, right? You're just stuck. And so this idea when, he, when the Apostle Paul says that the sorrow of this world worketh death, right? That's what he's um, That's what he's alluding to. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, um, it isn't uh, a mystical thing that's that's un, not understandable or spiritual or somebody, you know, when somebody says, well, have you experienced godly sorrow? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure what that means. That's that's um, this idea of godly sorrow um, is, is pretty um, simple, but it's that that recognition that I've hurt someone. And so um, have you have you been in a situation uh, where you've maybe hurt a family member or, you know, like me when I was younger, um, knowing that one of the things that I did hurt my brother and it, it led me to action um, rather than made me sit still that I, I had to follow through on it. And so godly sorrow, um, we know that, that, that the Holy Spirit has to convict. And so with that conviction, if you will, it can freeze us up. Or it can spur us forward, and so to 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 be able to repent, the prerequisite of of repenting is recognizing that I've hurt God, and so a godly sorrow, a sorrow towards God, or a sorrow where God is involved, is acknowledging and recognizing that that sin first and foremost, regardless of who else it hurts, regardless of of who else it affects and the consequences of it, is against God, and that I've hurt Him. Right? My my heavenly Father, the the one who saved me, the one who gave me hope, the one who who provides is the one that I've hurt. And so the Holy Spirit provides the conviction of sin. We read that in John. Um, but once that conviction of sin comes, I, it can either freeze me up where I can lock up, I can feel guilty and awful about it, and I just can't move. There's nothing I can do about it because I can't do this. I'm done. It it is what it is. Um, because I've tried and I just can't, I can't do anything about it, right? That that's the sorrow of the world, and the consequence of that of that state is going to be death, right? That is going to be death. The consequence of the other state is life. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. So the godly sorrow works and creates a reconsideration, a reconsideration, a change of mind. It it creates a change in myself that leads to salvation that I don't change from. So, uh, you know, it, it's great to talk about repentance in a couple passages where repentance is used multiple times to talk about reverse situations. So it's a little bit challenging. Verse nine was, or verse eight was challenging because he talks about, I repented, now I don't. Um, verse 10 talks about repenting um, that I don't repent from. But if you think about what it means to change your mind, um, this a change of mind or to reconsider so verse 10, for godly sorrow creates a change of mind that leads to salvation that you don't change back from. But the sorrow of this world worketh death. And so that's the buildup. And now um, we get into these attributes 
um, one after the other that the Apostle Paul sees. The prerequisite being a recognition that my sin, first and foremost, is against God, that I've hurt him, that 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 my sin is against him, and that that sor- there's a sorrow in me because that hurt to him is so real that I have to do something, right? I have to act. I have to move forward to make things right. Um, you hurt your mom and dad. Uh, um, as an example, um, right? You, when you were younger, I mean, I, this is, I'm speaking for myself, I'm putting it to you, but, um, I can't, I can think of multiple examples where I hurt my mom or I lied to my mom. Um, and initially you try to hide it, try to pretend nothing happened, try to just kind of fake it and everything goes smoothly. But, um, in that smoothness on the outside, you know exactly, I, I'm sure every one of you has experienced this, um, where that smoothness on the outside hides a turmoil inside where you're feeling awful, you're feeling guilty, right? You're feeling separated from your, your parents or your siblings. And um, every time they say something, you're thinking that they know, that they found out that you did this, that you lied to them. And so, um, you know, you reach a point at which that sorrow is so great and you recognize maybe you've hurt them by what you've done that you have to confess and you have to tell them and you have to make things right. And so there's that notion of the prerequisite in verse 10 of godly sorrow. And so now the apostle Paul in verse 11 says, for behold, this self same thing. And he starts, he goes basically in, in modern English, he would be saying, so just look at this, imagine this, think about what you've gone through, what you've done, right? For behold, this self same thing. That first, that you sorrowed after a godly sort. So your first start was sorrowing after a god after a godly sort. That's referring right back to verse ten. That you had that sorrow towards God, sorrow that drove you to repent. That conviction that He gave, that that you recognized, that didn't freeze you and lock you up, but it drove you towards something. And what was that that it drove you towards? He says, and he starts off with one word: what carefulness brought in you. And so let's talk about carefulness for just a minute. Um, what is carefulness? Uh, carefulness uh, in the uh, in the Greek would be spude. Uh, <laughs> and interesting, it, it, it's derived from the idea of speed. So um, you think, what does carefulness have to do with speed? But this idea of urgency, haste, um, eagerness, earnestness, right? This earnest uh, notion, this idea of of being careful, of being diligent um, becomes uh, really important. And so if you, if you, if we were to try to break out the the act of repentance into a series of of attributes of moments and of emotions, the first one that the Apostle Paul says is carefulness. And it would almost start with clarity. So there's a moment at which what I recognize, and I apologize for getting emotional as I think about this, but when I recognize that I've hurt somebody, that there's a moment of clarity, that everything becomes clear, right? It becomes black and white. We can see our sin. We can see its implications. We can, we can see and we sense the way out of the situation that we're in, of this sin. 
that moment of clarity can lead two paths. One is that path, that, that, that path that I see and I sense and I know how to get out is deemed too difficult. And it kicks me right back into guilt and into a spiral down because I see and I sense that I can't do it. But the other path that it can lead when I've when I've been when I when I'm sorry, when I feel awful about what I've done and I see that path forward is it can propel me out. And that's that moment of carefulness that he describes, that attribute of carefulness, not moment, but attribute of carefulness, is that it propels me out and there's a speed that, that's implied in it, an eagerness, but also an earnestness, a seriousness, right? There's a sincerity. Um, a, a, a diligence in pursuing God and avoiding sin in this moment, right? And and so um, I, I I feel bad because I have to add all these words to a word to try to explain it. But I'm trying to paint that picture of the moment that most of us, if not all of us, can relate to, where it's almost like I know what I got to do, and this is a big deal, and I'm going to do it. I am following through with it. I am going to move forward. I'm not going to sit back. I'm not going to wallow in my sin. I'm not going to pretend it's not a problem. I'm not going to fake it and say I, I don't believe it or or I'm fine. I'm going to I'm doing it and I'm moving forward. And that's this idea of carefulness. There's speed and there's diligence and seriousness in this moment. And so he says the first one that he brings up is carefulness. This heart searching diligence, right? This this sincerity um, a decision has been made. I've made the decision to follow God and I'm going, I'm moving forward. And what does that moment of decision yield? What's the next one? So the next thing that he brings up is what clearing of yourselves. Now, what does that mean? Well, um, you know, when I counsel folks, I'm saying, so what, is, what does it mean to clear yourself? And so the, the clearing is uh, apologia. Right, that's the Greek word apologia. Um, it it means apology. Right, the, the the clearing this comes from the root apology is to it's the answer for myself. Um, <clears throat> it's so I guess the, the easiest way to um, to say is let's let's ask this. So when somebody wants to clear their name, how do you go about clearing your name? You have been implicated. Right, you've been judged that you've been involved in something wrong, and you want to clear your name from that that event that's happened. Maybe um, you know you, you got busted doing something really bad by the cops, and your names in public. Maybe you got busted, um, and, and maybe it's hopefully it's none of you. Hopefully it's not me either. Right, is that you've been taking money. Um, on the side and skimming from the top of, of uh, uh, from work or from the retailer that you were involved in and, and people found out and when your name is mentioned everybody thinks of that that moment you know Bob was that person that that skimmed money off the top how do you clear your name of that well I guess if you're certain countries these days you might jump on the internet and just fill it with false information about how good Bob is and um, how, how good he's done. And, and you basically overwhelm all the negative statements that people are saying with so many positives that hopefully people start to believe the positive. 
I wouldn't recommend that approach. Um, there's a lot easier approach, actually, a lot simpler and more effective approach than just trying to spend a ton of money and engaging a lot of people to say good things about yourself. Um, so how would you do it? How would you clear your name? You would fix the damage, right? You would look at your actions and you'd say, I need to make things right. If I've skimmed off the top, I need to pay money back. Think of certain tax collector that Jesus um, saw up in a tree. What did Lazarus say when he came back down? He said, not only am I going to pay the money back if I've taken it falsely, but I'm going to pay it back multiple times. And so this idea of clearing your name and clearing yourself is, is not simply just an apology, but the idea of clearing your name is to make things right. Right? You make things right with the people you hurt, not just make things right, but you overdo it to make sure that things are right. So that in the end, when people think of your name, when they think of my name, they think of a positive that, that has been done and the, the, the apology that has been given and the making right that has happened rather than the negative that occurred. Now, for those of you that have counseled in the past or for those of you that are believers, um, this might sound very familiar to a certain word that we use when we counsel for baptism, right? We talk about the word restitution. You notice that it's not used, and I didn't use it once in this. I used clearing. The Apostle Paul says, what clearing of yourselves? The idea of restitution the idea of clearing yourself, of making things right with people is built into this idea of repentance. And so we wouldn't say that restitution is a step in repentance. We would say it's one of the, the pieces of evidence that would show that a person is repenting. And so as you think about repenting, whether you're a believer, whether it's for the first time, um, once, once you recognize that you hurt somebody, and you have that path forward and you've made the decision to move forward and you know that there's sin and that there's been things that you've done in your life that have hurt somebody, don't you want to clear your name? And so the Apostle Paul talks about that second thing after the prerequisite is, is clearing of yourselves. So then it goes on. And the third one is what indignation. Um, not a word that we use very often today, but it is a contemporary word. Right. There's still people still use indignation today. Indignant is, is also a, a word that we use. Um, I'm going to probably say this word wrong in the Greek. I didn't practice it enough to get it perfect. Um, but it's agonactesis, agonactesis. So in the this idea of displeasure, of anger, of disgust. And so the indignation would be, um, you know, I, I, the, the definition to me is actually a, an, uh, an emotion that you just see somebody who just is like so is cringing with what they've just experienced or seen. And so Paul mentions that there was disgust, indignation, anger, displeasure, disgust with what? What would there be disgust with? With the sin, right? With the sin. Once the clarity sets in, once the sorrow is there and the clarity sets in and the, the idea of clearing yourself starts to build up, there is, there's disgust with myself. 
displeasure with the sin. Like, I can't believe that. So the Corinthians, you, you can read it all of 1 Corinthians to see what, what they would be disgusted with. But I can't believe that I was associated, that I am associated with this sin. There's a disgust with myself and there's a disgust with the sin that that takes place. Agonactasis, right? Agonactasis, this indignation, this disgust, this cringing with what has happened. And so evidence of repentance. Is there displeasure and disgust with the sin? Not just with myself that that, that throws me into guilt, but with with what it is, with what I did, that there was a there's a change from thinking that it's okay to a to a disgust with it. Because I realize how much it hurts God. I realize why it's so awful and so bad. And maybe I realized it and just pretended all along that it was okay. But now I'm I'm being honest because there's clarity. And so agonactasis, um, indignation with sin. And then the next one, it's great, all in one verse here, right? Verse 11. So he goes from, from carefulness to clearing to indignation to fear. Fear, phobos, um, simple alarm, fright, fear, terror. Um, what is it with? You know, some people have said uh, that the fear that Paul is talking about here relates to verse 9 where he talks about receiving damage. And so that the people were, uh, were fearful of Paul coming. Um, I don't believe that to be the case. In this context, right? In this context, it's not it's not fear of Paul. It's not fear of Paul coming. That wouldn't have made sense in the context of First Corinthians because they already were kind of pushing him off. No, this is this is fear of God. And when you think of Hebrews ten, um, remember what what the, the writer says in Hebrews ten, um, verse thirty one or verse. Let me see. Is it verse thirty one? Let's get to the right chapter. Hebrews ten. Um, yeah, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in this this passage in Hebrews 10, if you know your, your Hebrews, right, this comes right after he talks about the, the danger of falling back, of sinning willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth. Right? So the, the, the conclusion of that portion of chapter 10 is... In verse 31, where he says, it is a fearful thing. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so you could almost picture in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, when he talks about fear, that it is it is a fear of where I could have gone. It is a, a fear of what could have happened. Like what the consequences could have been. Um, I remember this is probably a... a a really weak analogy, so forgive me for the weakness of the analogy, but I remember one time at work um, writing an email, hitting send, looking at the email. I don't know why I looked at the email after I hit send, <laughs> um, but I looked at, at the email I hit send and, and read it again, and all of a sudden I realized I wrote the wrong thing. And the panic and the fear about the consequences that all happen in the split second. Now, thankfully, in that moment, um, I actually read it wrong. And so when I, I, I panicked, I had this fear in me about the consequences of my email because I didn't mean to say what I said. And I just sent it to a client. And then I, I read it a third time and I realized that I actually wrote it right. 
<laughs> and it was okay. Um, but that panic, right? Your mind just kind of goes into overdrive trying to figure out what to do. And so the realization of my my hurting God and the, the, the clarity of the moment, the, the 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 clearing of yourself, that, that whole moment also there's a there's a realization that results in fear of um, of what could have been. And that in its own way is evidence of God working. Um, this, uh, this awareness of the state of your heart. Um, so part of repenting is also coming to the understanding of what happens if I don't repent. If I had never realized that what state I was in, right? So there has to be fear. There has to be this awareness of the consequences of my sin if I don't move forward. And so he brings up fear. The next one, um, and time is going by really fast here. So the next one is vehement desire. So vehement desire, the state of, of, of um, hypothesis, hypothesis, sorry, I got one P off there, um, a longing for, uh, um, an earnest desire, this strong, forceful feeling, passionate or intense kind of emotion. So this attribute that Paul identifies is this passion for God, um, you know, as we understand God's forgiveness. So I've got this fear, but at the same time, I recognize God's forgiveness in me. And as I recognize God's forgiveness, I have a longing for God. Um, you know, you ever want something so badly that you can't stop thinking about it? You fall asleep thinking about it. You daydream about it. You wake up and it's the first thing on your mind. It's like it's on your mind 24-7. So so maybe maybe for, for some of us, for for. Um, some of us, it's it's a it's a person that we're thinking about that we lust after. That's that's not the the right thing, but that 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 idea that it's that it's constantly on your mind. But it's about God, right? It's about God. I have a vehement desire for God, for Him, for His truth, for for who He is because of what He's accomplished. Um, this vehement desire for Him. The next one is zeal. Yay! What zeal? Zealous. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul was a zealot before he converted. He would follow Christians to the ends of the earth to squash them, right, to throw them in prison. He was on his way to do that when when he met Jesus on that road to Damascus. So um, this, this excitement. So not only do I have this fervent passion internally now for God that I can't stop thinking about him. I want, I want to know more about him. I want to be closer to him. Then there's an exterior notion behind um, repentance, and that's zeal, excitement, um, a desire. It's almost like, um, remember getting ready for camp? Not going to happen this year, but getting ready for camp when you're younger, um, you look forward or looking forward to a vacation. You do everything you anything you can to help to get ready. You can't wait for it, right? There's an excitement. There's a bubbling up. So zeal is the outward expression of the inward vehement desire. Um, so we, we see that build up. And then this last one is really interesting in verse 11. He says, yea, what revenge? So um, revenge, vindication, retribution, um, ekdiasis, right? Ekdiasis. Um, so what does it mean to, to, to revenge? So uh, there's this notion of, um, of meeting out of justice, of doing justice, kind of paying back the sin by doing justice. And so for the, the Corinthian church, it would have been to, 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 regardless of the consequences, we have to follow through on doing what is right, okay? And so um, for us as individuals, when we repent, um, 
before we repent, we might have compromised. We might have said this, you know, the situation or my actions or my life, it's not so bad. Maybe we said the Bible doesn't really mean that or God will overlook it or my motives are pure or God is about love or my friends care about me. So I have to hang out with those friends. Right. Um, even though they're doing really wrong things and, and I'm doing wrong things when I'm with them. So to repent, to, to get to that state, this idea of revenge, ectogasis. Ek, um, is this idea of doing what is right regardless of the consequences that I'm going to follow through on what the what the word says, what God wants me to do. And so I'm going to just kind of wrap up here really quickly um, for behold the self same thing uh, that first there's sorrow, then there's clarity and carefulness and diligence. Then there's a desire to make things right and clear yourself. And then maybe not in sequence, but there is. Um, an indignation and a disgust with my sin and with what I did and with those this, th that sin itself. And there's a fear, a fear of what would have happened if I had not repented or if I don't repent. That has to drive us as well, right? And then there's this desire, a fervent, passionate desire for God and for his work and for him to be evident in me. And right along with that is zeal this out outward excitement for him. And then there's the, the, the revenge that that's also one of those evidences that I am going to do what is right, regardless of the circumstances, that regardless of how I might have compromised before, I'm not compromising now. And the Apostle Paul concludes um, in verse 11, and he says, in all things, you have approved yourself, you have shown yourselves to be clear in this matter. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is not a checklist. This is an outline. And this is for a church, for believers as well as unbelievers, right? It was just written to a church. But for every one of us as individuals, I would propose that when we repent, we will experience these. They might happen quickly. They might be long. They might be big. They might be small. But every one of these is an evidence, is an evidence of salvation, is an evidence of God's working in us, in you. And so um, as you consider repentance, it is not just a change of mind. It is not just uh, um, the, the the idea that uh, I, you know that God has forgiven me. It is actually all of these emotions and attributes and thoughts and and actually then the follow through that comes with it that happen and that are listed in this one verse. So I would encourage you to remember this verse, underline it in your scriptures, highlight it in your virtual Bibles, and and focus on it um, and remember it. This is something that you can go back to and say, has God saved me? Have, have I repented? Have I seen this in my life? And if these are there, then the answer is yes. That's evidence of salvation along with others. So um, that, that's the thought for this morning. I've probably gone a little bit longer than I was supposed to. I apologize. Um, I do have a song for us. Um, I thought that hymn 105 in the Zion's Harp would be a, a really good one to sing. Um, so if we could sing that one together, that would be, uh, that would be fantastic. May the Lord, um, bless you all today and, and thank you for the invitation. It was unexpected, but, uh, really nice.